0: For Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, I'm Nick Ennen, and this is SciVibe. Today's guest is PNNL biogeochemist and senior research scientist, Dr. Nick Ward. Nick leads a research program focused on coastal biogeochemistry at the Marine Coastal Research Lab in Squim, Washington. Nick, I'm so glad you're here today. Thanks
1: for having me, Nick.
0: This is awesome. I'm like so excited today, really. This is going to be one of my favorite shows.
1: <laughs> I got to be real. All right. It's my favorite one too, I guess. (laughs) It's like trees,
0: you know, I have a thing for trees and I know like a lot of people do, right? Yep. But I just feel like there's infinitely more than we could ever know about trees. And their role in the in the bigger environmental picture. So there's a lot to unpack here. Um, so I first kind of want to dig into the man behind it all. And uh, rumor has it you're a
1: kite surfer. Well, uh, yeah, I've been a, a sailor and a surfer my whole life. I grew up in Monterey, California. Spent a lot of time around the ocean. Um, you know, that's probably one of the reasons I chose a career in coastal science. Is that I spent all my youth, you know, staring at the sea, trying to figure out the wind and tides and what made the waves good. So yeah, the kite surfing I actually did that when I moved up to Seattle for grad school. So yeah, I had to make the decision not to live in San Diego anymore, where I could surf every day down the street. Turns out kite surfing was just as awesome. And you could do it just down the street in Seattle. <laughs>
0: That's really cool. So you can still hang on to your passion and both senses and do what you love and then take a bite of the ocean
1: whenever you need it. Yeah,
0: it's a good release. And I suppose does it connect you to your work a little bit? Um, having that sort of up-close experience with the sea?
1: Yeah, and, you know, it's kind of just a nice time to just sort of reflect and take it easy, not have too much going on in your head. So add in that you're out on the ocean, getting spray in your eyes. Yeah, I would definitely say you know, it's a good way to connect. I'll, I'll share you another example. Uh, I've actually kite surfed across the mouth of the Amazon River uh, when I was down there doing some research. Wow. And that was even more literal in that I was skating across the whole, you know, landscape that I was interested in studying the day before. That's amazing. (laughs) It was pretty remarkable to feel the current of this massive river underneath you. It's pretty amazing. (laughs) It has
0: to be an experience of a lifetime. Oh, yeah. Now, I always thought that trees were, you know, good for the environment, but this research seems to indicate that some trees actually emit methane, which is a major greenhouse gas, and it's like many more times powerful than carbon dioxide. I mean, there's been a lot of coverage in the news about methane coming out of animals with the atmosphere. And how well known is it that trees are doing this too? And is it so minuscule that we don't even notice? Like, is there a smell?
1: So methane is odorless and invisible. So we, we can't see it. We can't smell it. How much do we know about this kind of phenomenon of trees emitting methane pretty little so there's been some studies going back even to maybe 1980 or so when um, some of these observations have been made but really the scientific community hasn't really started diving down into this phenomenon until pretty recently even just the last five or ten years or so so your question on what do we know about whether or not this is important on a global scale there does not exist a global budget for methane emissions from trees at the moment so we really can't say actually we know in the case of some forests or some wetlands that in fact this emission from trees can actually offset uptake by the forest rather substantially about 50 percent of what the forest would otherwise be taking up so that's kind of an interesting point to to think about okay is most people maybe don't realize that forest soils take up methane from the atmosphere. So there's less methane in the ground than there is in the sky. So it goes down into the ground. But actually, these trees, so I mean, they tap deep down into the ground, and they may be getting methane sources from deep down in the ground. The other kind of cool part of this story is that there's evidence that methane's being created in the tree. So some folks have done experiments where they uh, found basically that rot of the wood, in some cases, creating that methane. So there's bugs living in Bugs as in microbes living inside that tree actually producing that methane.
0: Wow, that's fascinating.
1: There's some examples out there actually where there is so much methane in the tree that if you drill a hole into the tree (laughs) and light a match, you'll see a flame coming out of that tree. Whoa. Literally flammable amounts of methane. That's cool. (laughs) Pretty amazing.
0: For sure. So scientists really only recently began to realize that this might be a problem.
1: Well, and I wouldn't necessarily say it's a problem. So the way I, you know, I I study greenhouse gases in a whole bunch of different environments. So we study greenhouse gases being emitted from rivers or being emitted from marshes. You know, I, I view this phenomenon as a natural part of the carbon cycle that we need to understand so that we can evaluate how humans perturb that natural system. So trees have been emitting methane on Earth since trees existed. And, you know, what, what, how are changes in the climate induced by human activities potentially going to change that process? Is it a feedback? Is it a positive or negative feedback? So, so that's, that's the angle I I I look at it from that we need to actually understand how the world is functioning naturally in tandem with trying to understand how humans are affecting the earth.
0: Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So tell me about this instrument that you place into the trees.
1: Yeah, so we use a a couple different tools. First step is just actually measuring the methane coming out of the tree. So, to do that, we designed some custom collars basically, just a PVC pipe that we glue to the tree and then a cap that you put onto that pipe, essentially. One of the tools we use actually is to probe the density of wood in the field in real time. So, we have this pretty neat instrument called a resistograph. That is basically a resistance drill that monitors how much energy it takes to drill into the wood. So we can be out there with this drill. It takes about one minute to drill into the center of the tree and come back out. And then we have a profile of how dense the wood is throughout that whole stem. So that's one of the tools we use to then try to understand, you know, what's driving the rate of these emissions that we measured.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. Let's back up a little bit, if we can, and tell me about the community that's doing this work. I know you have a chance to work with one of my favorite scientists, Nate McDowell. Who is a tree man, knows all about trees and did um, some fascinating research recently? what are what is the community made out of?
1: Yeah, that that's one of the most fun parts about this little niche field is that there's a really diverse set of researchers coming at this question from a lot of different angles. And the other thing is it's a small world. There's very few of us. So for example, at this AGU meeting, there's a special session devoted to tree methane emissions. And honestly, it's probably every person in the world who does this work is attending it. And and I can count that on, if I had a bunch of different hands, I could count it on all my hands, (laughs) the amount of people. Um, You know, so it's a small group, but it's folks with a lot of different diverse backgrounds. So myself, I never actually studied trees before I got into this sort of domain i'm a a biogeochemist. I've spent most of my time studying connections between soil and water um so now I'm looking at it from the angle of what's the connection between soil and tree and you know i th- I think about the the molecules and the reactions that create those molecules. But then you have other folks, you know, Nate is a good example of, he's really thinking about the physiology of the tree. So what is the tree actually doing and how is it functioning? And then how does methane factor into that um, as sort of a byproduct? Other folks, they're more ecology oriented. What's the whole forest doing or hydrology oriented? What's the water doing below the tree? So I just find it really cool that there's different great minds trying to tackle this issue.
0: That's great. I noticed in the YouTube video uh, about your research, which is really cool, and I encourage folks to check it out. We'll make sure and include a link that you were really just basically behind the lab and you grabbed a tree. But have you done a lot of travel related to this research and where's like sweet spot? Is there a place that you want to go that you haven't been? Yeah. In terms of travel for this research?
1: Yeah, so that that video was shot literally just a minute behind our lab there in Squim, And that's where we tested a lot of the methods. So we developed the chamber to measure fluxes. We developed this technique of drilling into the tree, extracting gas from the hole. Um, So all those methods that you see in that video, we've developed at home. And we've done a fair bit amount of work around the U.S. coastline. So a lot of our work has focused in coastal forests, mostly to do with me loving the coast and I'm a coastal scientist. (laughs) And so places we've visited, we've gone through a whole bunch of different locations out on the East Coast, specifically Chesapeake Bay. And those sites were super interesting because we were studying this sort of interface between wetlands and dying trees. So look up the ghost forest and you'll see a lot of pictures of that region. So essentially, these are trees that have been standing dead for tens to hundreds of years due to sea level rise. Wow! So that, that was super interesting to see. Um, we've done, again, a, a lot of work in the Northwest close to home. So the data that we're presenting at AGU is from this site called Beaver Creek, which is a coastal floodplain out on the Pacific coast here in the Pacific Northwest. And that site is super interesting because you get floods every month. So actually seawater floods the site. And so we're watching the trees steadily die in real time. So So we've got a nice set of both live and dead trees so we can test some of those questions. Now, your other question was, where would you like to go do some of this work? I can tell you, you know, I've spent a lot of time in my career down in the Amazon studying that system, and it's a hot spot for so many things. Actually, some of the really major work that's been done has been down in the Amazon, and that's One case where they showed, you know, almost 50% of the methane emitted from this floodplain lake was actually from the tree. So I'd love to get back down there and do some of this work. I'd love to go up to the, you know, high latitudes where you've got permafrost and ancient carbon buried below ground. I mean, there's so many different phenomenon you could study here.
0: Oh man, so interesting. You know, and my mind just keeps wandering back to the ghost forests. <laughs> what can you tell me about that?
1: October last year, there was a story in the New York Times and uh, like Newsweek and Time or something like that on ghost forests. So check it out. And so actually that kind of aside, that guy, Matt Curwin, who's featured in there is one of our collaborators. And they were filming it while we were out there.
0: <laughs> Spooky and cool. So back to the methane. Is this true of all trees or just trees near the ocean or other water
1: sources? That's a great question that we're really trying to address. I can't definitively say that this happens in all trees, but I have this gut feeling that to a very small extent, the answer is probably yes. On the one hand, though, I I would just preface this with saying there are species of trees and locations where we've seen orders of magnitude higher fluxes than we would in a different forest. So for example, the conifer trees we study in the northwest have substantially lower fluxes than um, the hardwood trees studied out on the east coast pretty substantially. So those hardwood species are the ones that we think actually produce methane internally from archaeal rot or fermentation, for example. Um, whereas some of these conifer trees, one thought is that they're more resistant to infection. So whatever's in their wood um, is, is makes that wood more stable. Now, on the flip side, probably m- almost any tree that's tapping into deep groundwater is transporting some amount of methane, albeit very small amounts. So that that question is exactly what we're trying to research.
0: Okay. Yeah. So like, how big of a factor is this? is the process just adding a tiny bit of methane to the atmosphere, or do you think it might be a lot?
1: I think it could be substantial um, if we get a handle on where, when, and why this happens. Forests take up X amount of methane, you know, an upland forest, so away from a wetland, um, you're you're a dry so dry soil forest. That kind of setting takes up a fair amount of methane from the atmosphere that is relevant on a global scale. And some, you know, estimates suggest that that sink of methane to the forest soil could be cut in half if trees were emitting as much methane as we think. So it might not actually be a question of, are the trees adding this amount of methane to the atmosphere so much as do forests not take up as much methane as we think, um, if that makes sense? Mm, Yes, yes. So another big uncertainty of this flux isn't just the magnitude on a global scale, but the feedback of this process uh, to warming or more extreme weather. Ah, And the way we evaluate these things is with global climate models. And so this process, methane emission from tree stems, is not actually represented in these global climate models. So we have no way of telling what are the feedbacks between the different systems and this, this emission.
0: Mm. Nick, can you tell me broadly, what are the impacts of this work?
1: Yeah, it, the... One one of the you know big impacts of this type of work in general is to make the point that we're still discovering on a daily basis new environmental phenomenon. So we're discovering these processes that might make us rethink how the Earth works.
0: Man, it's so awesome. So, is there a predictive measure to sort of study this phenomenon?
1: Yeah, you know. So the the one point is that our models don't currently have this process in them. So we need to build new models that actually represent this emission to answer that question. And so that's the topic of my presentation at AGU, actually, is trying to make a simple way to estimate and or predict what these emissions are. So we've done that for one forest, and we're not confident that our findings at that one forest can be applied to a different forest with a different tree species, with a different soil type, blah, blah, blah. Um so yeah much more work is needed before we can actually have a predictive capacity to understand this phenomenon.
0: Mm, yeah. What was your aha moment? Like how did you come to study this?
1: Yeah, you know I I had been talking with one of my buddies in Brazil on the boat um, in the Amazon about about this kind of work that was emerging and we we had sort of just thought it was a cool idea but we never really dove into it full bore and for me the first aha was when I saw it with my own eyes. So the first time I took a, a tree core right behind our lab and plugged that hole with a stopper, I pulled the gas out and I went and ran to our instrument and analyzed it. And sure enough, there was more methane in the tree than in the atmosphere. Yes. So for me, that was the, wow, this is real, okay. You know, let's dig into this a bit more. And so we, some of our first measurements were just done by opportunity. So Nate McDowell, who you mentioned earlier, he was going around doing a a survey of trees around the Northwest. So he was looking at declining growth rates due to sea level rise in these coastal forests. And I was showing him the sites that we had picked out um, for his study. And then I figured, well, you know, let's plug those holes that you're taking tree cores from and just pull some gas and see what happens. And you know that turned into, we had this data set from six different forests around the Northwest. And it was so compelling that we went back and did it again in the summer. So we had a summer and winter data set. And actually that turned into our first publication on tree methane. So it was kind of this opportunity. And then from that, we got a whole project funded and really started diving into it. But yeah, it all went back to that first time taking a hole in the tree and plugging it and seeing it with my own eyes. Yeah, there's
0: nothing like that. Nick, what inspires you to do this work? I mean, your family, Earth, the environment, taking care of the planet. What motivates you?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the first thing is simply curiosity. I'm always thinking about well, how is this working? Why, why is the tree slanted that way or whatever the question is, right? So it, it started with that curiosity and remains that curiosity. Then your other part of that question was, you know, more on a personal level, I think what we do is important for human at large. You know, I think it's really critical that the scientific community advances environmental research, understands how the world works, understands people's role in the world. So really, yeah, I mean, think of the whole human society, not just um, myself or whoever. Um, and a lot of the work we do, you know, it, it ranges the spectrum from fundamental science to applied science, where the fundamental science is kind of like this tree methane stuff, really trying to dive into unknowns. And then how do we apply that knowledge as well is quite interesting. You know, so we, we think about water resources, for example, which, of course, are central to human uh, populations.
0: What are the next steps for this research?
1: Yeah. um, So there's a couple directions that that we really need to go. One of them, I mean, one major aspect is developing that predictive capability. So being able to predict what's going to happen in the future with these fluxes. The other big aspect is simply quantifying the magnitude on a global scale of what this might mean. That's going to take a lot more work um, than has been done. So studying a lot of different types of forests and different settings, To really constrain those global budgets and i can find a corollary with some of the other work i do for example looking at greenhouse gas emissions from rivers so that's a relatively again a a relatively new topic that's been being studied for about 30 years or so and those global estimates are changing by the year still as we get new data coming in so i i predict that the same thing will happen with methane emissions where we're going to constantly have these revised budgets with levels of uncertainty, the budgets might go up, they might go down, um, and it might be decades until we settle on something we feel comfortable really saying is the the exact amount. Now, so that's on the amount and how the amount of this process might change. The other aspects are really, and this is getting into the curiosity, what causes it? You know, what's causing this to happen? The community has kind of two ideas on what's going on. It's either being produced in the tree or it's being exported from the soil to the tree. And beyond that, we know very little. So some of the work we've just started doing is looking for genomic evidence of microbes in the wood. So we've actually, this was another really exciting um, you know, piece of data we got back is we actually found evidence that there were methane producing archaea in that tree wood so we were able to identify DNA markers for this process happening digging down into that what are the what are the substrates that are being consumed by those microbes and what are the pathways that they're using to create that methane all this these topics are quite interesting and need a lot of work to constrain
0: yeah is there anything i didn't ask you that you want to add nick
1: Yeah, I would just add that, um, you know, as you could probably tell, the research that we and others do is quite diverse. I like to think of a tree as sort of a reservoir, a biogeochemical reservoir. So, for example, a lake or a river or the sediments below that lake or river is a reservoir for things to be stored. So the same stored or processed. Soils, you can say the same thing. So I'm like I'm viewing a tree sort of as a if you flip a river on its side and look up the tree to the soil instead of looking from the river to land to river to ocean. So really trying to kind of not think of a tree in terms of its biological functions, but actually as an environment. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway,
0: I like that. Nick, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. This has been really great.
1: Yeah, thanks, Nick. It's been fun.
0: Thanks for listening to SciVibe. We're dedicated to sharing the excitement of discovery. If you had an aha moment while listening to SciVibe, please share and subscribe.